Today, we are going to look at the obligation of pedo-baptism. That is, the obligation of members of the new covenant to bring their children officially into that covenant by applying the sign of that covenant to them. I'm not going to be looking at baptism more holistically. I'm not trying to give you a complete theology of baptism, and I'm especially not going to try to give you a full explanation of what baptism does, or you might say how baptism works. That is a very much deeper topic, and one that I'm frankly not sure that I'm ready to teach on. But we do not have to know all the details of how a thing works in order to know that we are to use it. God gives us sacraments, which are very deep things and hard to search out, but he does not tell us that we must understand them. He tells us that we must do them. The understanding is not insignificant, but the doing is the chief thing. It is much more fundamental. Since baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and since objections to infant baptism tend to arise from the nature of the new covenant and how it is made and who it is made with, I want to start by looking at the nature of the new covenant. How exactly does the new covenant differ from the old? What is the distinction between the new covenant with Christ and the covenant with Moses? And how does that affect our understanding of who should be included in it? So if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 31, and we'll be reading from verse 31. So Jeremiah 31 31 to 34. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts. And in their heart will I write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. The most striking thing about this passage, of course, is how different the covenant membership is that it seems to describe. It looks like it is saying that this new covenant is only made with those who have the law written on their hearts. Or to put it slightly differently, to put it in more Christian terminology, only those who are regenerated, who are reborn of the Spirit. Only they are brought into covenant membership, so it seems. This is the main reason that I have found that people say we should not baptize our babies. God has established this radical change, this sharp distinction between the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Christ. In the covenant of Moses, you were a member by birth, and in this new covenant, only you become a member by rebirth. This seems to indicate, then, that children should not automatically be included. They are not automatically covenant members, and so, of course, they should not automatically receive the covenant sign. Rather, we should wait and see if they become covenant members by being regenerated, 
before baptizing them. But if we question Jeremiah at greater length, we start to get some conflicting information. We need only go back to verse 1 of chapter 31 to see how God introduces this new covenant. He says, At that time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now Israel, of course, in this prophecy is referring to the church. So what does it mean that God will be the God of all their families, all the families of the church, if the children are excluded from this covenant with him? By the same token, look at how God reiterates the blessings of this covenant in Jeremiah 32. In verses 38 to 40, he says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. Now, so far, this sounds pretty much like what we read back in chapter 31, but now he goes on. For the good of them and of their sons after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from following them to do them good, and I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. So in both introducing and in summing up this new and better covenant, God says that the families and the sons, the children, will be the objects of his blessings. We see the same language being used of the new covenant in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 25, God says, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in mine ordinances and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And that, of course, being Christ. Well, this is a little confusing if the new covenant is made exclusively with the regenerate, unless we imagine that every child is regenerate from birth, which we know is not the case, because you cannot lose regeneration, and Christian children do fall away from the faith. How should we reconcile what God is saying here? One option is to say that the children are not included in the covenant automatically by birth. Rather, God is just promising here that he will observe a typical pattern in which he will regenerate the children so that at some point, as they grow up, they will become covenant members and the church can continue down to the next generation. This seems like a better option than saying that children are members of the covenant by birth because not all babies are regenerate. And does not Jeremiah specifically say that the difference between the old covenant and the new is that it is made exclusively with the regenerate? Look, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their inward parts. They shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Now, how much more explicit could it be? If you wanted to say that the new covenant is made exclusively with the regenerate, what would you say differently? How could this be clearer? Every covenant member knows God from the least of them to the greatest of them, which must mean all without exception, right? Well, we're Calvinists, so we know to be very suspicious of the all means all argument, but let's ask Jeremiah. Flip back to chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6, where he is speaking of why God is sending judgment on Israel. This is chapter 6, verse 13. He says, From the least of them, 
even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. So every single person in Israel is corrupt and has turned aside from God's law. Is that the best reading of this passage? What about Jeremiah himself? What about Daniel and his friends? They lived at that time. Is this language meant to be taken to condemn them also? To say that there is not a single God-fearing man in Israel anymore? Does God not leave a remnant? Or is it rather a figure of speech, a hyperbolic expression, meaning that so few are left, that the majority are corrupted? There are so few good people remaining that no matter where you go, no matter what level of society, whether it's peasants or kings, whether it's priests or prophets, you are going to find worthless men there. Well, flip over to Jeremiah 44, and starting in verse 12, we read this. I will take the remnant of Judah that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there. And they shall all be consumed, all be consumed. In the land of Egypt shall they fall. They shall be consumed by the the sword and by the famine, and they shall die from the least even unto the greatest. Same language, from the least even unto the greatest, by the sword and by the famine. And they shall be a curse and a horror and a curse and a taunt. For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall escape or be left to return into the land of Judah to which they have a desire to return to dwell there. Well, that all sounds pretty unequivocal. Or it would if the verse ended there, but it doesn't. Immediately after saying, none of the remnant shall escape or be left. They shall all be taken from the greatest to the least. It finishes with, for none shall return except those who escape. Now Jeremiah explicitly shows us here how we should read from the least of them even unto the greatest. It does not mean every single one. It does not mean that. He openly says there shall be exceptions. It is not a literal, universal statement. It is a figure of speech, meaning a lot, a majority, a good number, a large enough proportion that neither small nor great will be excluded, even that there aren't many exceptions. As he goes on to say in verse 28 of this chapter, they that escape the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt few in number. The language explicitly is not universal, but rather is used to describe a big enough percentage that the exceptions are few. So in other words, the problem with the old covenant, the problem that the new covenant solves that Jeremiah 31 is describing is not that every single individual failed to continue in it because they were unregenerate. The problem was that the people did not continue in it. And the solution to that, the solution which the new covenant brings, is not that every single member must be regenerate, but rather that the body as a whole is regenerate. In scripture, covenants are always about bodies. They're not about members. The marriage covenant establishes a new body, one flesh from two previous bodies. 
The covenant with Abraham establishes a new body, Israel, as God's son. We have seen how the church is a body, the body of Christ, under the new covenant. The problem, therefore, that Jeremiah describes, the problem that the new covenant solves, is a body problem, not a member problem. Israel, as God's body, did not function as its head directed. It did not exercise dominion for him. It did not increase that dominion into the world. And that is the problem that the new covenant solves. In fact, the Great Commission is directly aimed at that specific problem. And it is able to do so. It is able to act in God's stead now. His body is able to be a good body. Not because every single member is regenerate, but because it, as a whole, is directed by God's Spirit, properly connected to the head. This does not require universal regeneration of the members. It only requires general regeneration, that few are unregenerate, which is achieved not by cutting children out of the covenant, but by cutting the unregenerate out of the covenant. Members that do not bear fruit are cut off and thrown away. And this is the importance of church discipline. But the general nature of the covenant does not change. For a covenant to even be a covenant, there must be a head and a body. And this, as we've seen, is a fractal pattern. It means that not only is the head Christ and the body the church, but there is a head in each church and a body in each church. And within that church, you have households. And households are bodies with heads. The, the, the heads incorporate, integrate the rest of the house. And so the children are incorporated into the head of the house. The house is incorporated into the church. And all are incorporated into the greater head, Christ Jesus. Take the first century church as an example, as a model. Are the majority in the first century church, as the disciples are going out preaching the gospel, baptizing people, are the majority of them regenerate? Of course. And are some included in the church, are some baptized, who are not regenerate? Also, of course. Simon Magus is baptized, which means he is buried and raised with Christ, joined to him as a covenant member, and then immediately we learn that his heart was not right before God, Acts 8.21. We also know about Alexander the coppersmith, about the incestuous man that Paul told the Corinthians to excommunicate, cut off from the covenant, about Diotrephes, who refused to receive the Apostle John, and no doubt others that I have forgotten. And thus we have warnings in the New Testament, warnings that directly reflect the warnings about falling away under the covenant of Moses. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 14. For by one offering, he that is Christ hath perfected forever them that are made holy. And the Holy Spirit also beareth witness to us. For after he hath said, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and upon their mind also I will write them. Then saith he, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now this is just Jeremiah 31. Now where forgiveness of these is, there is no more offering for sin. 
Having therefore, brothers, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water, that's baptism, let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as ye see the day drawing nigh. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. A man that hath set at naught Moses' law dieth without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, think ye, shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was made holy an unholy thing and hath treated with contempt the spirit of grace? For we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will repay. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author of Hebrews here is warning his readers about something that could happen. That is the very reason he is warning them. He is warning them that just as the old covenant, the covenant with Moses, had punishments for those who broke it, so does the new. And these are worse because the new covenant is better. A man who is baptized really is covenantally buried and raised in Christ. And so he really is made holy by that covenant. He is set apart for God. And so he really is united to Christ, cut off from Adam. And the blood of the covenant belongs to him. But if he does not receive the substance of the covenant, which can only be received through the Holy Spirit, through generation, if he does not repent and exercise a living faith, in other words, but instead goes on sinning, then there is no more sacrifice for his sins, but rather an expectation of judgment. You see very clearly here the same distinction between external and internal circumcision that we see in the Old Testament. Circumcise your hearts, God tells his people, it is not enough to be externally circumcised. You must be born again. You must be regenerated, given a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. Paul explicitly relates baptism to circumcision in this way, saying in Colossians 2, in whom ye were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein ye were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. Just as circumcision was a cutting off of the flesh as a sign of faith, so baptism covenantally cuts us off from our flesh, from Adam, from the curse of the law, and joins us to Christ. It is also a sign of faith. We die and are resurrected in baptism, dying to the old, rising to the new. If, ever, if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creature. 
2 Corinthians 5. And again, Galatians 2. For I, through the law, died unto the law, that's through baptism, that I might live unto God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. And because of this, he goes on to tell us the response that God requires. Finishing the verse, that life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, excuse me, in faith. The faith which is in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And again in Romans 6, he tells us, we were buried therefore with him through baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. For he that hath died is justified from sin. But if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death no more hath dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died unto sin once. But the life that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Even so, and here's the response that is required, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it very succinctly and well. Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. It goes on to explain By our engrafting into Christ is meant our being cut off from our old stock of nature and being joined unto Christ Jesus, whereby we come to draw virtue from him as our root, that we may grow up in him and bring forth fruit unto him. That is the expectation of everyone who is baptized, just as it was the expectation of everyone who was circumcised. And just as children were circumcised with that expectation, so children should be baptized with that expectation. The language of Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the families, about the sons, the sons' sons, does not appear out of nowhere. It is language that builds upon the existing pattern established in the covenant with our father Abraham. Genesis 17 Verses 7 and verses 9 to 14 say, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And God said unto Abraham, And as for thee, thou shalt keep my covenant, thou and thy seed after thee throughout their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep. Between me and you, plural, and thy seed after thee. Every male among you, plural, every male among your community, in other words, every every male shall be circumcised. And ye shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of a covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every male throughout your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any foreigner that is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with money must needs be circumcised 
And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Now is this covenant abolished in Christ, or is it brought into its fullness in Christ? Certainly it is not abolished. For Paul tells us, they that are of faith, the same are sons of Abraham. It's Galatians 3.7. And he continues in verse 14 saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessings of Abraham in Christ Jesus. These are the blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words... The new covenant is the fullness of the covenant with Abraham. The sign of the covenant has changed, but who it is made with has not. The promises are now greater in Christ, but their recipients have not changed. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12.3 Watson pithily comments, Certainly Jesus Christ did not come to put believers and their children into a worse condition than they were in before. No, indeed. Paul is explicit in Romans 11 that those under the new covenant, the Gentile Christians, are those grafted into the existing covenant people, Israel. This is Romans 11, 17 to 22. But if some of the branches were broken off, that is Israel, and thou being a wild olive, the Gentiles, was grafted in among them, and didst become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, glory not over the branches, but if thou gloriest, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, by their unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, neither will he spare thee. Behold then the goodness and severity of God toward them that fell severity, but toward thee God's goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. The new covenant people is a continuation of the people of Israel who were a people by the covenant with Abraham. We are grafted into that covenant and thus subject to the same covenant rules unless God changes them. And notice again the warnings. Paul says these same people could be removed from the covenant just as the Israelites were. So clearly the covenant is not made only with the regenerate. For John tells us, All that which the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Yet in John 15 he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he cleanseth it, that it may bear more fruit. Already ye are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. So neither can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For apart from me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. 
Now, Jesus obviously cannot be talking about the same thing here as he is in John 6. In John 6, anyone who comes to him will never be cast out. In John 15, many who are branches in the vine of Christ will be cast out. It is quite evident that John 6 is about regeneration, and John 15 is about covenant membership. You cannot lose your regeneration, but you can lose your membership in the new covenant. So we have seen that the new covenant continues and brings to its fullness the covenant with Abraham. It still follows the same rules unless God changes them. Now, does God anywhere stop making this covenant with the children? Does he anywhere forbid us to any longer give children the sign of that covenant? True, the sign has changed. He has changed the sign. Its form is different. But both represent the same thing. Romans 4.11 tells us that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had. This is also what baptism is a seal of. A sign that God very clearly commands Abraham to give to his infant children. Now if circumcision is fulfilled in baptism because the eternal covenant with Abraham is brought to fruition in Christ, then certainly we should expect the same rules of covenant inclusion to be in place unless God explicitly revokes or changes them. But he does not do so. He does quite the opposite. The very first gospel presentation at Pentecost explicitly says, Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Anointed, unto the forgiveness of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And again, this language is not pulled out of nowhere. It does not exist in a vacuum. It is alluding back to the entire Old Testament's worth of promises in which the children were covenantally included, thanks to the pattern established with Abraham. The promise is for the children because the children are members of the covenant. That is what this language means in Scripture. That is what it would mean to Peter's Jewish audience. In Acts, of course, it is also extended to those who are far off, to the Gentiles, because the Gentiles become members of the covenant too. But the children are explicitly included. If Peter had wanted to have the Jews understand that children are not to be baptized, that they are not automatic covenant members, he would have had to say completely the opposite of what he does say. Indeed, if children were not to be treated as covenant members, it would have been an unprecedented, radical change in the very nature of biblical covenant itself. And there would have had to be explicit and lengthy treatments of this change in the New Testament, just as there were with regards to the dietary laws. The Jews would certainly have needed instruction on such an enormous paradigm shift and an explanation of God's rejection of the seed that he had always included in his covenant dealings. Such a cutting off could not have been made without some explanation, some record. The fact that there is no such record is not an argument from silence, but rather an argument that such silence could not exist given the nature of every other covenant previously made in Scripture. It is true that we have no explicit command to baptize children. In much the same way, we have no explicit command to serve women the Lord's Supper. 
And yet we know that women should take the Lord's Supper for the same reason that we know children should be baptized. The patterns of God's dealing with his people require it. Absent an explicit command not to baptize children, the clear and repeated and consistent pattern of Scripture is that they are to be treated as heirs of the covenant, inheritors of the promises, and so to be included in the covenant through the covenant sign. Yet there is still a tendency, and I think it is quite a modern tendency, to think that if children cannot profess faith, and this is despite the fact that obviously Abraham's children could not profess faith, and and yet they were told to uh, have the sign of faith given to them. But people think if children cannot profess faith, then they should not receive the sign of faith. But is the fundamental issue with baptism the professing of faith or the having of faith? God gives promises to our children, not just to us. Be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit, Peter says. Can children receive the Holy Spirit? Well, of course they can. Can babies have faith? Of course they can. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and leapt for joy when he heard Mary's greeting. In the same way, David says in Psalm 22, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me trust when I was upon my mother's breast. Trust. That's faith. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God since my mother bore me. And Psalm 8.2 says, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou established strength. In the same way, in a verse that sets the whole pattern of Christ's attitude to children in the New Testament, he indignantly rebukes his disciples, saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me, forbid them not, for to such belongeth the kingdom of God. To such belongeth the kingdom of God. Now, does the kingdom of God belong to the baptized or the unbaptized? I don't claim to know how all of this works, because certainly many children who are baptized later leave the faith. But I think it is worth noting that the promises in the Old Testament are not indexed purely to the sign of the covenant, but also to the parents fulfilling their covenant obligations in raising the children. How many baptized children leave the faith who are also nurtured in the discipling and instruction of the Lord? Certainly far fewer than those who are just baptized and left to their own devices. In other words, we have to see that the working faith of their parents matters. God is not bound by time, and how he chooses to fulfill his promises may not be based only on the past, only on our own covenant membership, but also on the future and our faithfulness to our children. Nonetheless, we know from 1 Corinthians 7.14 that our children are not unclean, but are holy. And we've already seen from Hebrews 10.29 that one is made holy by the blood of the covenant. No one is made holy apart from being grafted into the new covenant. So if children are holy, children are covenant members. We've seen Romans 11.16 also that If the root is holy, so are the branches. And like all symbolic patterns, as I've said, this is fractal. It applies not only when the root is Christ, but also when the root is a father or a mother. Just as there's confusion in the modern mind between children professing faith and children having faith, I think there's also a similar confusion between children understanding the sign that they're receiving and children simply receiving the sign. But 
Even aside from the example of circumcision, why should we think that children must understand a sign in order to receive it? Do we only start talking to our children when they can understand words? Do we only include them at our table when they can understand the significance of sharing food? Do we only give them our surname once they can grasp what it means to belong to a family and receive an inheritance? Do we only start to dress them when they can choose their own clothes? The obvious answers to these questions hopefully helps you to understand what a bizarre way of thinking this really is. The meaning and importance and efficacy of symbols, and baptism is a symbol, a physical expression of a spiritual reality. The meaning and importance of and efficacy of them relies on their meaning and importance and efficacy in the community that they exist within, the community that we are born into. They constitute us and shape us and provide the framework of identity within which we begin to understand who we are and how we should act. Before we are conscious, before we are personal agents, we are bodies, and our conscious personal agency is formed by those bodies and by the symbolic ways in which other people relate to those bodies, from food to clothing to worship to covenant signs. Alice Roberts says, the body is the site of our givenness, where we are embedded in nature, tradition, society, and culture in a manner that precedes any decision or action on our part. In other words, it's a little bit highfalutin perhaps, but what I'm trying to say is the, the process of being enculturated in the ways of the Lord begins long before we are able to speak. Fathers are to nurture their children in the discipling and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, we all know that verse. We're all dedicated to it. And this process begins before any kind of spoken teaching. What is the first step in being discipled in the ways of the Lord? What is the very first event in true Christian discipleship? What does Jesus himself say when he sends his disciples out? Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. After that comes the teaching. I think the case for infant baptism in Scripture is beyond substantial. It is one of the strongest patterns that can be established from Scripture. It is, in fact, much stronger than many other patterns that we take for granted, like male headship in the civil sphere, because it is grounded in the fundamental pattern of federal headship. But with that said, I do want to briefly, <clears throat> excuse me, briefly turn to look at how we should do baptism, since that will be a practical concern for us very soon. We take as our doctrinal standard the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says in chapter 28 and 3, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. I would like to argue that this is not quite right, and I take a small but significant exception to the Westminster on this point. I believe we should say rather that dipping of the person into the water is ideal, but baptism may also rightly be administered by pouring or sprinkling. <clears throat> this is because, as I have briefly commented before, the Greek term baptizo really does mean to dip or immerse. That is its typical common meaning. Baptism 
developed out of Hebrew ritual washings, which involved complete submersion. You were fully covered in water. And of course, we've seen that the primary meaning of baptism is also burial into Christ, which is very difficult to symbolize without actually going into the water. However, the New Testament also clearly links baptism with sprinkling, both explicitly and typologically. We've already seen an explicit example in Hebrews 10. Look at verse 22 again. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and having our body washed with pure water. This is quite obviously a parallelism. The washing here is a reference to baptism. And like in 1 Peter 3, which speaks of the removal of the filth from the flesh, it is a somewhat extensive thing, if not a complete submersion, certainly a more substantial cleansing than getting a wet head. But at the same time, it's clearly linked to this theme of sprinkling. The sprinkling is explicitly connected to the baptism. A sprinkling of the heart is paralleled with the washing of the body. So clearly we're supposed to understand these terms in a somewhat similar way. In the same way, Peter describes the Red Sea crossing as an antitype of baptism. And of course, the people in the Red Sea crossing did not physically descend into the water. They did not actually get submerged. Symbolically, they were submerged because they were under the sea, but the sea did not wet them. But we do read in Psalm 77, 17, that the clouds poured out water. So in the baptism of the Red Sea, not only did the people pass through the waters being symbolically immersed, but they were also sprinkled with water from above. And by the way, the people who received that baptism were a mixed multitude that included children. In the same way, Ezekiel 36, speaking of the new covenant, says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give to you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And Isaiah 44, 3 says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. So I think it is very safe ground to say that sprinkling or pouring is connected with the new covenant and with baptism specifically. And there are instances in the New Testament where it's, Hard to imagine complete immersion being used. The jailer and his house, for instance, in Acts 16, finding water in the middle of the night sufficient to immerse everyone in baptism is one example. It seems a little implausible to me. 3,000 men all being baptized by immersion in Jerusalem at Pentecost would also be a logistical problem. I don't think it's impossible, and the Bible does not say one way or the other, but it does seem plausible that something less than full immersion would have been used in those cases. Many of the oldest baptismal fonts, actually, from the very earliest churches, were designed as a kind of shallow pool that you could kneel in, you'd be submerged perhaps up to your waist, and then water was poured or sprinkled upon you. This seems at least as legitimate as full immersion because... Full immersion makes it awkward to add any sprinkling. If sprinkling is important to the concept of baptism, how do you do that with a full immersion? If you're in water and then water is poured over you, you are symbolically immersed since there is water above you and water below you. And so you also get to retain the pattern of sprinkling that is so significant in Scripture. Now, the fact that all of these elements seem to be in a bit of tension and the fact that Scripture does not specifically instruct us on how to baptize leads me to say that 
many modes of baptism are valid, although I do think that a mode that includes both dipping and sprinkling is ideal. This is just a very brief summary of my thinking because I, I don't want to run too long, but essentially I would say that going into a river or a pool and then having water poured over you would be a good way to be baptized. But if you were immersed, uh, baptized by full immersion, that is fine too. And if you were only sprinkled, that is a bit of a weak effort, but God does cover over our weaknesses. The one exception to this rule, which is important for us, is infants. Because going into water requires that you be able to stand and walk, or at least to sit still. And I can't see that how you would make that work for a very young child. So I suspect that the early church simply poured water over them, much as the practice is today. The Eastern Orthodox fully submerged them, taking the Greek word baptizo very literally. But I've already mentioned how this tends to eliminate any sprinkling, and it certainly seems a bit rough on the babies, although I will grant that it is not as rough as circumcision. So my recommendation for anyone old enough to walk, get dipped in water and sprinkled from above. Anyone not old enough, you can be sprinkled without the dipping. But I want to conclude with a warning. We have read in Genesis 17, verse 14, that the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. If what is true of circumcision in regards to covenant inclusion is true of baptism, and I think that we must assume that it is, then this should give us great dread for the souls of our children should we neglect to baptize them. We see how seriously God takes this in Exodus 4 where Moses is returning to Egypt as God's emissary and yet God meets him in the way and tries to kill him because of his lack of circumcision. Only when Zipporah circumcises their son and symbolically casts the foreskin at Moses' feet representing his genitals does God relent. It's Exodus 4, 24 to 26. So although baptizing, uh, not baptizing children is tolerated in the modern church due to how common it is, I believe the reformers were right to treat this as a serious error and a breach of faith with God. So let us make haste to baptize our babies who have not been already and to claim the promises of God to our sons and to our sons' sons. I'll leave you with the words of the great English Puritan Thomas Watson, who said, Such as deny their children baptism, make God's institution under the law more full of kindness and grace to children than they are under the gospel. Which, how strange a paradox it is, I leave to you to judge. <laughs>